Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Otessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. When I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost large changes in Stately, plump, but elegant. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. It's the twelfth day of Christmas. And you join us here, dear listeners, at 37 Rue de la Boucherie, Paris, on the evening of Aunt Sylvia's annual dance party. Most of the guests have already arrived and conversation is lively. There is much open and cheerful speculation over whether a certain cousin, a gifted baritone, but also a notorious wallflower, might have his arms sufficiently twisted that he consents to sing a folk standard or two before food is served. Much private concern about whether the after-dinner speech by a certain precocious niece, the new vedette of the American Republic's greatest seat of learning, will not soar over the sawdust-filled heads of the ignorant old fools who make up most of the gathering. And much hand-wringing by the hostess herself over the fear that a certain cherished but dissolute friend might show up somewhat worse for wear, having spent the previous night at one of Europe's finest purveyors of industrial techno, and so the previous day trying to tweak his come down with gallons of Starbucks coffee. And yet... Oddly, not one of these three guests can presently be found, for, as the dances begin downstairs, they have all retired to one of the upper chambers of the house, to resurrect a tradition that dates back so far it might be said to almost finger the realm of legend. (laughs) That tradition, dear listeners, dear friends, is a ritualistic confabulation known as a bloomcast. And as always, they invite you to listen in. Come in. My name is Adam Biles, and I'm literally run off my feet. Excuse me. I'm literary director here at Shakespeare and Company. And as always, I'm joined by my comrades in arms, Lex Paulson and Alice McCrum. Lex, Alice, happy Christmas. Welcome back to Shakespeare and Company. Such a delight. Such a delight. I come back only for your introductions. Uh, I wish we so that we're back in this uh, glorious little <sighs> studio here, overlooking Notre Dame, and uh, but we're also overlooking the Thames from uh, from Alice's perspective. Alice, you want to tell us where you are? Oh my goodness! Well, so I'm currently in in London, if only to be a little bit closer um, to the live stream of Paris. But as nobody knows, I guess because it's it's pretty unexciting news. Um, I spend now 
all of my time in uh, in New Jersey at Princeton, where I'm studying um, history, broadly understood. And the kind of funny question, well, I suppose the question that often comes up, and I have a funny answer for it, which I'll relate, which is, um, do you miss Paris? And quite apart from all the dreams that I had at the beginning about Paris, uh, actually being in Princeton, I guess my funny re- response is that there's nothing in Princeton that reminds me of Paris. <laughs> <laughs> the first letter and that's it. So there's no way to be triggered uh, into some kind of, you know, Proustian reverie about how my Parisian days because... Um, there's nary the, a Madeleine. The closest thing to Paris is this thing called the Bread Boutique. Um, and the infamous hot dog croissant. So, um, and Alice, you said you're studying history. Are you enjoying <laughs> it, or is it a nightmare from which you are trying <laughs> to awake? I have to say, returning to Joyce and returning to the, you know, let's say the living world, uh, as I have done for the last couple of days, um, with my family and with kind of contemporary culture. Um, there's just. I mean, I lo- I am loving it. I really, really am. Um, and I'm interested in, I should have been more specific, I'm interested in um, environmental history, which any long-time listener would not be surprised to hear, but also legal history. So, um, okay, and, and over to you guys, because I haven't now seen you in a long time, so this is in earnest what's been going on. Um, so it was a big year for me um, book-wise in that uh, brought two books into the world, um, uh, Adam was very kind to invite me to Shakespeare and Company uh, for the Paris launch, the dual Paris launch, along with Alice inviting me to the American Library of my my book on Cicero, um, arguing about the roots of the, the the greatest and worst parts of what it means to be a republic, uh, which Cicero was the first to to theorize. And that felt good um, to bring out into the world. And uh, and then in the last few months, a book has come out on collective intelligence uh, for democracy and governance. So 35 case studies of how uh, governments around the world are using the distributed intelligence of everyday people to um, solve hard public problems. So um, I'm ready to uh, kind of dive back into fiction after a year thinking about uh, politics um of the of foreign foreign sundry lands and now uh getting back into the the cold um snowy evenings of dublin um it feels really nice to say hello to old friends uh here in the studio and uh, on these pages i want to get sorry to really just briefly jump yeah. in but um i didn't know about you adam but the thing that really stuck with me lex from your book and our conversation about it and i think about it like every other day is that the romans you argue in the book, weren't the best innovators, but they were the best assimilators. Hmm. So that they stole a piece of technology, they deconstructed it, they studied it, and then they replicated it. And that was their that was their one of their reasons for their success. I think about that all the time. Yeah. No, I mean if it, no 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 empire is really worth defending, but if you had to defend one, the Romans are great because they actually really did integrate so many of the cultures uh, over which they ruled, um, and and it you know figures in in uh, in Ulysses in Aeolus when they say that Rome was the you know was the empire of the of the sewers and and toilets and aqueducts uh, as if that was a bad thing to bring mm-hmm. to humanity uh, as opposed to the you know Catholic chivalry of the you know. Uh, of, the, of the pagan the pagan forests, but um, the scene that foreshadows life of Brian. The scene that foreshadows life of Brian, where the Romans done for us. But but um, 
yeah, the the Romans do find their way uh, insinuating into into the uh, least expected corners of our. Well, I will um, I will see your two books. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> release two books um, this year, and I will raise you a house move. A house move, well. please. Um, so uh, my two books. The new child. Uh, well, I mean, we're, she, we're still we're still with one. They're still around. They're still toddling, despite what people might have expected. Mm. Um, yeah, I had my my second novel, uh, my second mm. what I think of my second real novel out uh, this uh, this September. Please. I'm a great cat's partisan, by the way. Yes, I know you are. I'm very <laughs> I have a lot of affection for that's you. A, that's that's Adam's first oeuvre in his in his larger canon, which uh, which the, shall not be forgotten. The great lost novella. The great lost novella. Exactly. Um, and so, Beasts of England, the the unofficial sequel to George Orwell's Animal Farm came out in September. So I did a few events around that and that was quite a lot of fun. And then in October, um, the Shakespeare and Company book of interviews, which was a sort of 20 of the, well, what I, I thought were the most kind of interesting interviews that I've conducted here over the last decade or so. Um, and that was a particularly interesting one because so many of these interviews I expected to be transient. I didn't expect them to really go beyond the, the people who heard them in the rooms, the few people who heard them on the podcast uh, back in the day. Um, and it was just actually quite a quite an emotional experience, actually revisiting a lot of these conversations and also seeing the way my own concerns crept into them because um, so many of the writers were talking kind of across each other. And I was trying to figure out whether that was something to do with the zeitgeist or whether it's because my own kind of unarticulated concerns was kind of, <laughs> were kind of in, in, dragging them into dialogue, yeah, kind of imposing another. on the interviews, <laughs> and um, uh, to, to answer some of my uh, deepest and darkest questions. Um, so that made it quite an exhausting um, autumn, really, because the house move happened in July. But one of the one of the pleasures about the house move as well is we're in a slightly bigger place now, which means more, more wall space for pictures. And one picture which I unearthed, which I haven't had on display for years, and I'm so delighted to have it back on the wall, is by um, a, an artist called Stephen Crow. Stephen um, did the, uh, along with his wife, Melanie Amaral, did the illustrations to Feeding Time, my first novel. But he also had a project quite a few years ago called Wake in Progress, which was, it was his ambition, uh, not yet fulfilled, but uh, incredibly noble to draw a picture for each page of Finnegan's Wake. And so I have uh, the picture from uh, page 22, Mm. Um, which is an extraordinary um, sort of uh, witch-like figure. I've no idea what it's about because I still haven't got around to Finnegan's Wake. Uh, but it does mean that every day uh, I am, I'm, I have a little bit of Joyce kind of mm. um, just sort of making its way almost through osmosis in, uh, into my mind. Radiating into the room. Yes. I was talking about Ulysses creeping into my life. How has it been for you the last... 12 months has there been since, since our since our bloomsters yeah have there been has, has 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 joyce remained a presence has a sort of the we all spoke at the end of of our last episode about how our, like, we felt we didn't been in some way reconfigured by mm. this this reading is, is is the reconfiguring continuing for you both i mean i think i suppose there are two reflections one is i was so i, I returned for the celebration of bloomsday outside the shop mm-hmm in June. And I was so struck by reading Lestragonians how strange the language was once you had stepped away from it and come back to it. I think because we were so immersed in the language for so long, we became in some ways desensitized to all of the tricks. Um, And I felt like 
and as I say, I mean, I practiced a little bit before I went on stage, as it were, um, earlier this year, but not very much. And reading it aloud in front of a group of people, having not really looked at a in a Ulysses um, paragraph for maybe six months, it, w- it was a remarkable experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is something to be said in that way, I think, of returning periodically um, and just not necessarily reading the whole thing, but returning to the language and the strangeness of the language because it's so, it does work on you. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that I just saw, it's another recommendation, but anyone who's in London, but I imagine this play will continue. Annie, Annie Baker's new play, Infinite Life. Mm-hmm. Um, the tagline of it is five women in Northern California lie outside on chaise lounges and philosophize. Um, and I was just reminded, because we'll talk about this in The Dead, you know, people's treatment of the past versus the present, um, how, you know, Annie Baker, like Joyce, a really keen mind taking seriously the contraptions of the present is so powerful. You know, mm-hmm. so in that play, unlike any other contemporary piece of art, she managed to weave in phones, for instance, in a way that I really hadn't, apart from, let's say, um, Adam's fantastic novel and and the birds and Twitter, for example, you know, social media, phones, um, these new technologies that are really hard to to weave in since no one's really done it. And I just, I was so struck by her, her brilliance um, at doing that. And I was reminded of how Joyce did that 100 years ago and embraced the new technologies um, as opposed to shying away from them. There there have been, what you made me think of, Alice, there there have been some interesting pieces about um, the decline of the humanities and how, for example, university majors studying history and and philosophy and literature and foreign languages is in a is in a chute libre, as the French would say, um, in most parts of the of the Western world. Um, Alice is fighting the good fight uh, <laughs> uh, on on the bar- on the ramparts, um, and 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 you know how bad most um, you know humanities teachers and evangelists like us, you know, kind of the were the were the street leather evangelists, I would say, for the for the for the humanistic um you know way of thinking and and how how bad most of us are most of the time at um at making the case for why reading a novel like ulysses um is worthwhile besides just being you know high-minded and having a little badge on your lapel to for you know to to chat about it at cocktail parties it's 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 a it's a balm and a uh a deep well of um healing energy and power in my life right now and and the last um couple months i've had you know some stressful times like my live my life on, on planes between paris and morocco i teach and and uh, you know pulling together a, a school and it's it's it, but when i feel really sort of a little alone or 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 stressed out i'll listen to those last three episodes. Um, so our Eumaeus episode, dear listeners, and Ithaca and Penelope, um, and and the and, and interview with with Declan Kybird. And and I'll I'll just remember how how much energy we expended, obviously, on on reading and thinking about the book, but where we ended up. And we ended up, I think, with some of the deepest, most humane truths. Um, and how much of my life I don't get to to, to, to connect with with those deep truths because I'm solving problems and answering emails as most of us are uh, and now raising a 19 month old child and 
but every so often I'll just put on one of those episodes. And besides <laughs> obviously basking in Adam's anecdotes about being a, uh, a wayward goth teenager. Um, <laughs> and I, I just, I, I, I think we, we, uh, we arrived at some, um, through Joyce arrived at, at some, um, beautiful points about, about life and, and human beings that, uh, uh, I was grateful for, and I remain grateful for. So it's, it's good that we have this podcast because uh, I like to go and revisit those things mm -hmm. sometimes. And it's like hanging out with you guys again. You just put me in mind of something, um, from the interview book, actually something that the, the great novelist George Saunders mm. said when he was here back in, I think it was 2017. Um, he said, the world is way beyond our ability to grasp it. So with grief, we sometimes get a little glimpse of the truth the truth of how things really are with us. And then the walls come back up. And I think through art also, we get a little glimpse of truth. Mm -hmm. If we read something or hear something or see a wonderful production, our eyes open just for a minute, then they close again. But that experience is actually sacramental because it infuses every other minute of your life with this kind of awe. That's it. And, and it's, it's rare that that happens on your own. I think it was something that Joyce brought us into this collective pursuit that it happened because we're with each other, you mm -hmm. know, and Declan Kyber. <laughs> That allowed us to, to to plumb the depths and achieve the heights of, of those the fourth truths. Bloomcaster. The fourth, the fifth beetle, and fourth bloomcaster. Before, before we before we leap into um, our discussion of um, the dead, well, that is indeed our subject. That today. is indeed. Our subject. I did just want to bring up. Um, I think I know we've all read it uh, and indeed listened to him talking about it. I think there's one particular article about Joyce, um, which is an article about a book about Joyce, which was um, so uh, Colum Tobin, uh, who was one of our readers in um, in the, the great Ulysses project of 2022. Um, he wrote in the London Review of Books um, an article entitled uh, Arruginated. Um, and it's essentially a review of a new, the newly published annotations to James Joyce's Ulysses by Sam Sloat, Mark A. Mamagonian and John Turner, um, which is 1400 page pages of annotations to Ulysses. It's the most complete the most detailed, the most insane mm. <laughs> um, book uh, ever ever written about this particular book. But uh, Colum Tobin writes so beautifully about it. He goes into all of the the little kind of curiosities that this book uh, throws up, things like, you know, about Joyce's mistakes, whether they were intentional or not, about possible queer readings of, um, mm. of Ulysses, um, and so, so many other things. Uh, so this article, Arruginated, uh, you can search it, uh, you can find it online in the London Review of Books. He also, on their podcast, the London Review of Books, he is interviewed about it and speaks um, wonderfully, as he always does, uh, about uh, this book and about Joyce in general. Um, and it was one of those things that after, you know, several months away from Joyce, um, inspired me to, 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 to return to him once again mm. um, in, a, in a way that I think I'm probably destined to do for, uh, for the rest of my <laughs> as life. As long as we're hounding you. Yeah. Shall we? Right. So um, I think we're going to talk about the dead today. Mm -hmm. um, and we decided to do this coming off of last year's Bloomstis um, because I think we all agreed that we wanted to stay in the world of Joyce, but that jumping into the precipitous cold lake of Finnegan's Wake um, was something we were not ready to necessarily do. And that, But we all, I think, had a sense that Dubliners and specifically the dead would give us a perfect one episode um, you know, extension of no longer Bloomstis, but now because it'll be January 6th when our 
listeners hear this, um, something like Joy Sension Day. And, uh, and so we're here again uh, in Dublin, but, uh, and, and again on 1904, but at the beginning of 1904, January 1904, before Stephen wakes up in Martello Tower and, and Bloom uh, sees the fireworks from the beach, um, there was a party. And so mm. Adam's going to tell us about this little party. Okay, so I have a summary of it. And I just want to sort of preface this summary by saying it's an incredibly difficult story, novella to summarize, because as is the case with almost everything Joyce wrote, every single detail counts. So how do you... Just read it. Just read okay. page one. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I'm going to read it. Wait an hour and a half. Everyone. Okay. So this is, fill, this is, fill up your tea mugs. This is my attempt to summarize the dead. It'll uh, last a few minutes. I'm sorry if you get sick of my voice. Um, and I'm sorry also if I leave out any of the details which are particularly important to you, dear listeners. But and for any listeners who haven't yet read The Dead, I just want to warn you, this is going to be a quite spoiler-tastic summary. So what you might want to do now is pause this podcast, go away, read The Dead. It will take you an hour, an hour and a half tops, and then come back and listen to the rest of the conversation. Here we go. It's Twelfth Night, also known, perhaps somewhat appropriately, as Epiphany. We open in the hallway of a townhouse at 15 Ushers Island, Dublin with Lily, the caretaker's daughter, literally run off her feet, as she welcomes guests to the annual dance of sisters Kate and Julia Morkin, the missus, and their niece Mary Jane. The hostesses are fretting that, despite it being long after 10 o'clock, their nephew Gabriel Conroy and his wife Greta have not yet arrived, and Gabriel is supposed to give a speech after dinner. But they do arrive, to general relief, and scrape the snow off their galoshes. Gabriel somewhat clunkily tips Lily before going upstairs to join the other guests, his worries about whether he has pitched his speech too intellectually for his less educated audience are interrupted when Freddie Mallins arrives drunk, as Gabriel's answered feared, and Gabriel is tasked with making sure he doesn't show himself up too much or cause too much trouble. Mary Jane is giving a performance on the piano, which Gabriel considers to be, out, be without melody, but which is rapturously received by the gathering. Next, a dance is organised, and Gabriel ends up paired with a certain Miss Molly Ivers, who announces she has a crow to pluck with him. She has discovered that Gabriel writes book reviews for the Daily Express, a British newspaper, says he should be ashamed of himself, and brands him a West Briton. She later claims to have been joking with him, then immediately takes exception to his preference for holiday in Europe rather than Ireland, needling Gabriel about his lack of patriotism, until he finally declares, Oh, to tell you the truth, I'm sick of my own country. Sick of it. After the dance and a quick chat with Freddie Mallins' mother, who informs Gabriel that Freddie was nearly all right, Greta comes to tell him that his aunt wants him to carve the goose. Greta asks about his row with Molly Ivers, and then when he says it's because he didn't want to take a trip to West Island, she cries, I'd love to see Galway again. You can go if you like, Gabriel replies coldly. Gabriel frets again about his big speech and its themes, Irish hospitality, sad memories, the three graces, Paris, and a quotation from Browning. He suddenly has an idea of something he would like to add praising the older generation's hospitality, humour and humanity. This is more to stick it to Miss Ivers than the actual truth, he admits to himself, since his aunts are, to his mind, two ignorant old women. Next, Aunt Julia gives a bravure a singing performance, after which Aunt Kate gets in an argument with Mr Brown about the Pope's decision to turn out the women of the church choirs. Mary Jane placates everyone with the declaration that we really are all hungry, and when we are hungry, we are all very quarrelsome. Somewhat fortunately, then, it is now time for dinner. The food is served. Gabriel carves two rounds before being implored to feed himself, which he does. During dinner, there is a discussion about opera and a singer called Parkinson. Then, once everyone has eaten, it is time for Gabriel to speak. It is a fine speech. Just fine. <laughs> he thanks the hostesses, speaks about the Irish tradition of hospitality. Then he addresses the new generation, saying, 
It is serious and enthusiastic for these new ideas, and its enthusiasm, even when it is misdirected, is, I believe, in the main sincere. But we are living in a sceptical, and if I may use the phrase, a thought-tormented age. He then talks about how such gatherings stir up sadder thoughts, quote, thoughts of the past, of youth, of changes, of absent faces that we miss here tonight. Our path through life is strewn with many such sad memories, and were we to brood upon them always, we could not find the heart to go on bravely with our work among the living. We have all of us living duties and living affections, which claim and rightly claim our strenuous endeavours. Before adding, somewhat portentously, therefore I will not linger on the past. Gabriel concludes his speech by toasting the hostesses, after which Mr Brown leads a gathering in a rendition of For They Are Jolly Gay Fellows. It's time to leave. The final guests are waiting for their cabs. Gabriel asks after Greta and is told she's upstairs getting her things on, listening to someone fooling, Gabriel's word, on the piano. As they wait, Gabriel tells a story about their grandfather, Patrick Morkin, and how his old mill horse, Johnny, who, on one particular occasion, ended up circling a statue of King Billy again and again, perhaps because, Gabriel speculates, he fell in love with the horse King Billy sits on, or because he thought he was back again in the mill. A cab arrives, and Gabriel lets Mr Brown take it. He is distracted by what's happening upstairs. A woman, his wife, Greta, is leaning on the banisters, listening to something. Gabriel is surprised at her stillness, and strains his ear to listen also. He asks himself what a woman standing on the stairs in the shadow listening to distant music might be a symbol of. The aunts come back from the door. Gabriel holds his hand up for silence and points upstairs. They all listen to Bartell Darcy, the Irish tenor who has also sung alongside one Molly Bloom, singing the ballad The Lass of Ockram. The song breaks off and Darcy prepares to leave. As for Gabriel and Greta, Gabriel finds himself suddenly transfixed anew by his wife. As the party walks home through the still dark morning, Gabriel watches his wife with a joyful and tender blend of happiness and lust. He remembers something he once wrote to her in a love letter. He thinks about how it will be later when they're alone together at their hotel. The party finds a cab, which drops off the Conroys first. As they make their way upstairs, Gabriel continues thinking on how exactly his desire will express itself once they're alone together. They reach their room and Gabriel turns down the porter's offer of a candle. In their room, he makes a few conversational sallies, each of which are abstractedly rebuffed. He begins trembling with annoyance and not being the master of her strange mood. A discussion about his kindnesses towards Freddie Mallins ends with her kissing him and calling him generous, now making him tremble with delight, and renewing his hope that there might be some kind of communion this evening. Gabriel asks Greta what she is thinking about. To his surprise, Greta bursts into tears, admits she was thinking about that song, The Lass of Ockram, and throws herself onto the bed. He asks why it makes her cry. She says it reminds her of someone who used to sing that song. Someone she was in love with? A young boy she used to know. He was called Michael Fury, and Greta used to go out walking with him when she lived in Galway. Gabriel jealously speculates that was the reason behind her the desire she'd expressed earlier to visit Galway. After a long pause, Greta tells him Fury is dead, that he died at 17, that he was in the gasworks, all of which humiliate and angers Gabriel. He tries to stay calm and asks how he died so young. Greta answers... I think he died for me. She tells him a story about how when she was due to leave her hometown to come to Dublin, he was quite ill. But the night before she was due to leave, he came and stood outside her house, throwing gravel at her bedroom window. She came down to the garden and there he was, shivering. He told her he did not want to live. A week after Greta left, Fury died. Greta cries herself to sleep, leaving Gabriel to think, to dwell on how poor a part he, her husband, had played in her life about the riot of emotions of the past hour and what about the party had stirred them, 
about how his Aunt Julia would likely die soon, about how it is better to pass boldly into the other world in the full glory of some passion than fade and wither dismally with age, about how he had never felt towards any woman what Greta felt for fury and how that must be love. Gabriel's eyes fill with tears and, and, and well, at this point in the summary, there is nothing to do but hand it over to Joyce himself, since no few lines of Precy could do justice to the transcendent beauty of that final paragraph. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen, and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard, on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. So that was 120 years ago um, this week, January 1904. Um, it's a feast day. And so to get us into the, the story, um, so let's think about this feast day and uh, this device of this party, which is not just any party, not just you know friends casually gathering. This is a, a well-orchestrated, uh, ritualized, highly ritualized um, gathering of um, somewhat artistically minded uh, friends uh, of this a couple of, of uh, great esteem uh, in Dublin who are music teachers and singers. And so this, this word orchestration, I think, can, can be one springboard into the story. Um, how does this idea of an orchestrated dance on this feast day, um, how does that help us approach um, what what how Joyce uh, how Joyce uh, uh, is talking to us in this story? I think I think first we have to talk about the different types, the different levels of orchestration at work in the story, um, because the thing that really struck me when rereading the the dead um, for the first time in preparation for this was the virtuosity of Joyce's orchestration mm. of that party scene to begin mm. with. Um, now he is what, how old, 25? He's writing this in 1907, he's born in 1882. So yeah, 20, he's writing this when he was 24, which is- um, Which is extraordinary for so many different reasons, right. um, which will probably unfold. For anyone who's, who's, who makes their living writing, that's a kind of a astonishingly young yes, age to be writing this, this story, yes. Um, and what it put me in mind of um, was a scene that I wrote in my first novel, um, Feeding Time, which has eight characters sitting around playing Monopoly. And this was, it's a relatively pedestrian scene, I suppose, compared to a lot of uh, the rest of the book. And yet it was the most difficult for me to write, simply to get the dynamics of this yeah. conversation between eight people feel realistic. And it took me literally months and months and months to do. And I think it's fine and it works, but it's not. And here we have a room of 25 people literally dancing right. and singing and moving from one place to another. And some of them are, are dead drunk. And, yes. Yeah. Moving between people, moving between consciousnesses, moving between scales and registers, mm -hmm. between, I guess, cultures, between levels of history mm -hmm. as well, um, between levels of meaning. And so 
that orchestration first. I think it's sort of I have to you know I have to tip my hat to Joyce. It was it is the most extraordinary, technically perfect mm. piece mm. of piece of writing. Mm. And having read it now three times in preparation for this podcast, I still don't really have any idea how he does it so effortlessly. Yeah, what do you think, Alice? Yeah, and I, I think I mean I would like to insert um, a kind of nested <laughs> anecdote, which is that. You know, here I'm drawing on another beautiful piece by by Toy Bean at, in the introduction to the Canongate edition of Dubliners, uh, in which he breaks down the whole collection, you know, with great insight, but specifically the dead. And he cites Joyce, um, who's reflecting on, I suppose he's just finished um, writing it, in May uh, 1906. And this is what Joyce says of his desired orchestration. He writes... My intention was to write a chapter of the moral history of my country and I chose Dublin for the scene because their city seemed to be the centre of paralysis. I have tried to present it to the indifferent public under four of its aspects, childhood, adolescence, maturity and public life. The stories are arranged in this order. I have written it for the most part in the style of scrupulous meanness and with the conviction that he is a very bold man who dares to alter the presentiment, still more to deform what he has seen and heard. Um, what do you think he means by scrupulous meanness, Alice? You know, I think that it's the kind of feeling that Adam is is capturing in his summary, the feeling of Gabriel um, at the end of the story. There's this kind of edge uh, to some of the characters' emotional life. Um, Because I took that, I mean, I really read that uh, there was a real violence to his desire. um, And there was a real violence to his kind of comparison with this past lover. Um, It it, it struck me as very male and kind of uh, ego-driven. And and that's also what Torbin, you know, points out in the introduction that Gabriel as protagonist, I mean, we'll talk about him um, in a little bit, is is kind of fraught with um, ambiguities. So he's, you know, Torbin writes he's well-meaning and pompous. He's kind and superior, nervous and resentful. He's proud but easily un- um, undermined and threatened. So, so I think scrupulous meanness, yes, is uh, a kind of overriding sentiment, but it's cut by all these other contradictory sentiments yes i want to i want to pick up on 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 what you said about ambiguity because i think i think this is this is not a ponderous story it's a very fast moving story and with with a lot of funny exchanges and things happening and it's the story of a party for christ's sake so it's 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 not um you know a solemn portentous but as you say all those emotions are are there there's certainly a kind of um uh this mix of of conviviality people loving each other's presence um, and alienation at the same time. And that's, I think that's the kind of the double edge of this word orchestration is that in the, the formality, the ritual, you know, Joyce was famously um, a Catholic who, who loved ritual and hated clergy, right? He, he 
he would you know in in Trieste he would he would stand famously at the edge of the of the, of the church door not going inside the church but he would stand at the at right on the on the outside looking in and and mouthing along with the words to the to the mass so he he loved these collective rituals um and but just you know hated all of the you know puritanical um you know self suppression that that went along with with the catholic faith um in ireland so i mean there's there's that kind of double edge to orchestration i think there's what you said adam about the technical wizardry of bringing all these people together i mean dubliners as a collection of stories you know it it rarely t- keeps you into one person's consciousness for very long. Right. Yeah. Um, you 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 really are dealing. I use the word collective protagonist, Adam. I really like that idea, um, not only because it's my métier now, but because I th- I think Joyce really does um, pull it off. It's that you re- you read through Dubliners, and as I did actually, I read I read Ulysses before I read Dubliner. I read the um, one of the books from uh, one of the stories when I was twelve in in my English class. Thanks, Mr. Hanser, for getting us to read uh, <laughs> Araby, um, which I didn't make a big impression. When I, was, I mean, I remember feeling this kind of weird, um, like the the difficulty of being twelve. Basically, that, that Joyce pulls that off very well. How it's not easy to pick it, you know, um, and uh, and but it's really it's as much about the community and the interactions between people as the thoughts that they they have, you know, all, all of themselves. And so only at the end, I mean, here's this really. This is why I think Adam, it was so appropriate for you to to really slow down and expand at the end of your summary is that. You, you almost feel like he's written a whole second act mm-hmm. in just those last five pages um, with, with Greta's soliloquy, her remembrance of Michael Fury, and then Gabriel's very deep and touching response. And you're right, Alice, that he, and maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get into this, he is, is not the most likable character in Joyce, for <laughs> sure, but he does change and he does allow, and he mm-hmm. allows himself to change um, in a way that I, I think... Um, um, you know, Joyce wants to wants to exemplify as someone himself who grew up in this culture could easily have gone this direction and been one of those guests at the party for the rest of his life, um, and instead deviated because he met Nora Barnacle and and you know and galloped off to Europe. Um, but you know, he he writes this story from a distance lovingly, but it's it's really as as much a story about about community mm-hmm. and and all of the good and bad things uh, about uh, about those interactions. Um, and also, though, I think the way that ego runs up against community as well, because mm-hmm. uh, what we see, I think I find really fascinating about the the walk back and then the cab ride back and then the arrival in the hotel is that you have Gabriel again to use this um this 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 work called orchestration essentially attempting to orchestrate, orchestrate the right exactly the evening. yes and, right because you know sometimes when you're in a married couple you don't have a lot of times without the kids uh-huh. and you really <laughs> want to make good use of an evening alone with your spouse I, I said having no personal Adam and having no direct personal experience no of that at, at all but he he forces it a little bit right hmm. yeah 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 but also I think it's to do with a general sense of control of a man of his position. Sure. It's a similar thing, the effect he wanted to have with his after-dinner speech as well. Because when there's an orchestration, there's a sense of the, the orchestrator and the orchestrated or the conductor and That's the orchestra. Right. Yes, and, yes, yes, and yes. I think there's something about Gabriel, and we'll maybe come on in a moment, we will talk about his character, who sees himself as the orchestrator. Yes. And that sort of, it sort of comes in a different, uh, a different level, a different regimen. 
there, there's, there's this, there's this nice um, detail in um, John Huston, um, great director, um, did a, a film of the dead mm-hmm. in 1987, starring Angelica Houston uh, as as Greta Conroy, and um, he has Gabriel at various points, um, starting at the very early in the in the movie, glancing at his notes for the speech. And I don't remember how often Joyce actually has has Gabriel do that, but it's a very nice. <clears throat> As to, to, to your point about he he does think Gabriel really does think of himself as he's responsible for the emotional climax of this party, which is the speech in which the hostesses will be, you know, formally and and roundly praised. And he he's never really at the party right. as a result, right? Um, but before we talk more about Gabriel, Alice, you you maybe had some um, had some thoughts about the music. Well, I think it flows um, really seamlessly in the sense that what was striking me and and now that you bring up you know, Gabriel as as the head of the orchestra, I think it makes even more sense that I was just so attuned, again, as all these kind of metaphors about characters, whether they're about to sing or they have sung or they're talking about music uh, and speech. Like for for Joyce, they really are just one and the same. The language and the music is one and the same. And I was so struck by these people trying to find the right pitch or the right tone. Um, And you get it on the very first page, you know, the description of the annual dance never once had it fallen flat. Mm-hmm. Um, people describing, uh, Joyce describing people's speech in friendly tones. Um, and then, you know, Gabriel anxious about having taken up the wrong tone um, with various people in the party based on the levels of their education. Um, and so I think, you know, I was thinking about this because it seems like if we want to push this idea of Joyce as um, the head of the orchestra, you know, it's like he knows kind of what he wants, but the question is like, what are the kind of composite parts? Who, who, what are the pieces of his orchestra? Like, what does that look like in the 20th century? Uh. Because the, the old, um, uh, you know, musicians and the old um, instruments, they aren't, you know, it doesn't matter how you play them. I think for him, he's feeling that they're not, finding the right pitch they're not they're just not tuned and it doesn't matter if you tune them i think he's thinking like i need a new orchestra here um, it's funny because 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 declan kyber makes a point about how this is a middle class party right this is a this is not an aristocratic and not a working class party these are these are people who um you know are respectable but are not wealthy and how you know kyber says that that class had barely come into existence. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you're absolutely, I think, I think you're, I think I agree that, that there's a restlessness that Joyce has about the parts of the past that he's, you know, the instruments that he's having to, 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 you know, weave together into a symphony. But on the other hand, you know, this specific combination of people, journalists and teachers, um, and, you know, in the case of Molly Ivers, like a Irish Republican activist, um, was actually not and in, in uh, had not been around for very long at the mm-hmm. time when this when this was was happening, which is sort of it's sort of in a funny way it adds to the formality that they're not quite sure how to act, even mm-hmm. though they've done this. You know, these individuals have been at this party um, every year for it sounds like many very many years with with Miss Kate and Miss Jane. Um, they, they there is a little bit of I think this is Professor Kybert's point a little bit of a latent feeling of of are we doing the right thing. Right. Are we behaving appropriately? Gosh, I think that's such a good point, and it would make me entirely retract what I just said. <laughs> well, I think that I think both things can be true. I think he is he's fed up with the you know the kind of old nationalists, 
um, instrument in the corner and he needs to chuck that out. But as you say, I think the composite parts are there in this new sense. But no, but, I, but I think you're right that he's 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 impatient about like the the dwelling in the in nostalgia. Like let's talk about the great tenors, you know, yes. fifty years ago. Yes. Yes, I think really impatient with that. That no, that's certainly true. And what I think is so fascinating, you know, to bring this metaphor of orchestration to the new composite past is how to get the right balance between being the controlling artists and letting them have their own freedom and mm -hmm. just do what they feel inclined to do. And that's, I think, he's trying to work that out at the end. Yeah. Um, well, throughout, but certainly we feel that control with his wife at the end, which is that you know a great orchestra, a great like, what is the conductor. conductor? <laughs> Because you were thinking in French. We, we, we all know that. <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the greatest conductor doesn't have a kind of like, you know, complete, complete demanding dogmatic control. Or maybe maybe we argue that he that he or she does um, over. I mean, now I'm thinking about Tar from this right. year. But <laughs> um, basically, to what extent does the conductor uh, let the musicians um live fill in, fill in the gaps yeah, yeah and i think it's a spectrum i don't think it's you know i don't think it's it's one or the other i think it's a little bit more control at this moment and, mm -hmm. and bringing it back a little bit at another moment yeah. um, but this connects what you said adam about that that this whole thing could be seen as gabriel's belated realization of his failure of trying to control his wife and trying to oh, control absolutely. this party yeah yeah i mean it's um um and again i well, i think we'll come on to this but it's a, the whole the, the story is about i mean one of the many things that dies or is dead in by the end of this story is Gabriel's ego. Yeah, you know that is sort of this this whole Amen. construction that he he had um, he he built up for himself has been is left in is left in tatters um, at the end. I would just like before we move on from the subject of music, um, and this is obviously not going to be a surprise to anybody mm. who's read Ulysses and particularly the Siren section, and if mm. you heard particularly Lex talking so uh, brilliantly about that, is Joyce's recognition of the power of music. Uh, the evocative power of music, yeah. the way that it can dredge up memories, the way that it can kind of, mm. you know, elicit this kind of Joycean nostalgia mm. in a way perhaps mm. more than any other mm. art form can, in fact. Like mm. there's there's definitely something I think in Joyce that treats music of all kinds as sacred in some way. I, I don't think, I mean, I've, I, I can't think of any other writer who has depicted that the, the power of music better and more convincingly than than, than Joyce, um, and because he's a musician, you know, mm -hmm. and and he, I mean, should have stuck to the singing. <laughs> I, well, this is the thing in his lifetime. This is what um, this is what uh, Elman says in the in the biography um, uh, that in his lifetime, when when people would run into each other in the streets of Dublin uh, in the twenties, and oh, you have any news from Joyce? Fine, fine. Yes, I know he's writing some things, but how is his voice? <laughs> <laughs> That was the first question because he was he was considered one of the great tenors, and and it's it, I mean it is to this to this tale and to Ulysses what butterflies are to 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 Nabokov. I mean it's it's the mm -hmm. it's the light mode or what you know tennis is to David Foster Wallace. Like it's mm -hmm. the it's the thing that you know that they love more than anything right. else. Yeah, maybe yeah. with the exception of writing, but we're not even sure no, whether no, no, no. <laughs> would actually like uh, mm -hmm. would prefer to be a musician above all other things. So yeah, I think I think mm -hmm. he does convey that power. Um, and we'll I'll put we'll put the uh, in the show notes the um, the link to the John Houston movie, which is free on, on YouTube. If you have um, you know a few minutes, it's it's about half an hour before the end of the movie. 
um, the scene with the the last of Akram with uh, with Bennett Darcy, uh, Bartel Darcy, who is singing off screen, mm-hmm. and and um, and uh, Gabriel's watching from below the from at the bottom of the stairs, looking up, and it's one of the most and you could tell Joyce was a cinema you you know he was early on the cinema thing because it's the most cinematic mm-hmm. watching someone watching someone else listening to a, a musician singing off screen and it's it's just sublime. Mm-hmm. Alice. Well, I have two two points, and one is a segue you'll be delighted to hear. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think the first point, I mean, is it music? I think it's just sound. And I, I love this idea that he's he's fascinated by the sounds of music, the sound of language, and that this idea of somebody like trying to tune prose <laughs> mm. or tune poetry, and what does that look like? Like the the taking the impulse to tune your to get in tune with your voice or get in tune with your your instrument and then taking that to the page i think that's just like such a beautiful um image but wait wait on that point a, f- a footnote two, <laughs> two phrases you're not getting your segue two, two, no, before the segue because just on exactly what you said there are two phrases um he uses to describe the uh what, what how people respond when when um miss jane is about to come and do her uh, do her song the irregular musketry of applause mm. which i loved and then wow. the noise at the table when people are are um, are being served the goose and the turkey the noise of orders and counter orders um so yeah he captures this the kind of the ambient noise at a party mm-hmm. with just these these perfect phrases. Okay, back to you, Alan. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Okay, so so this is uh, back to the official script, which is and yes. the official script mm-hmm. marches on and I don't have an official script. What <laughs> no, we're strictly unofficial here. Keep going. Um, I guess the kind of like uh, graceful way to say this would be something like we've heard a lot about Gabriel. What about Greta? What about mm-hmm. their relationship? Mm. Well, before we come on. So specifically their relationship. I would like to say a few other things about Gabriel, because I think one thing, for example, um, when we're talking about Ulysses, we get to talk a lot about Molly Bloom because we are inside her head for the last what, however many pages of the book. Um, we're never quite inside Greta's head. I mean, Lex earlier used the, the term soliloquy, which is, is what we get. So we get her kind of... At the very uh, end. At the very end. Mm. We get her kind of external expression of her of her thoughts mm-hmm. but we don't get that kind of what might be called in creative writing classes that kind of close third person mm-hmm. perspective we just get, we, we get her in still actually even at the very end mediating right. through the gaze, gaze of the gaze of her husband yeah but so, but i think there were a few things for me that define gabriel and it, it's funny it's that thing that kind of joyce does they're so subtle that you don't necessarily pick up on them on the first reading and or i certainly didn't and then when you come back to it that just kind of give you these small indications of the kind of man Gabriel is. So there is the fact, so I, I, in the introduction, I mentioned that term, the thought-tormented um, mm. age or whatever, which he uses in his speech, but only after he has been reminded of it and complimented on it by Molly Ivers. So, and Molly Ivers has now left the party, and he clearly sees that as an opportunity to perhaps garner some sort of compliments. You know, somebody, he says, so he's clearly an insecure man in certain respects, and he wanted to kind of recycle this thought, which had received some praise, to hopefully receive some more praise. So that I thought was interesting. The first mention of his wife, uh, so when they arrive together, their first interaction, the first thing you see about the dynamic between them is when he says, my wife here takes three mortal hours to dress herself. Now, this, of course, could be seen as kind of a social convention, the husband complaining about how long the wife takes to get ready. But I think it does also give you some indication to the kind of man you are. But the one that really got me was when he was remembering early on in their relationship. 
And he remembers a love letter that he wrote to her. And he remembers the words. It sort of it sort of takes a certain sort of transcendent pleasure from those words. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to I I I think I would more likely, I would hope, I would more likely remember the love letters I had received. No, not me. Not me. Not at all. No, no, I'm totally on the Gabriel on the Gabriel side of this thing. And I will say I've been on the receiving end of letters written by Gabriel and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not about you, it's about them and their ego. And you show up on about no, page but come 10. on. But when when do you write those things? You write them when you're 17, 18, 19 years old. And of course, you're enjoying the experience of being in love for the first time or being infatuated with someone for the first time. And so, of course, it's as much about you as it is about the other person. And that we should forgive ourselves for being 19, you know? But he's not 19. He was when he wrote it. Well, I think, well. But he's not, not when he remembers it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and another weird moment, I mean, we can point this out and you, you reference it in your summary, Adam, but when he sees his you know, beautiful, winsome wife on the stairs. Right. And rather than reflecting on that, saying, I wonder what it might be a symbol of. <laughs> yes. But also in that moment, I, one thing I find very interesting is that he, he doesn't recognise Greta at that moment. I mean, you know, I, I, don't, I think it would be too extreme to say, like, he thinks he sees a stranger. But just the way the sentence is constructed, a woman was standing near the top of the first flight in the shadow also. Mm. He could not see her face, but he could see the terracotta and salmon pink panels of her skirt, which the shadow made appear black and white. It was his wife. Mm. and there's something really fascinating about that. So I think we've all experienced it, even with the people we're closest to, that moment of kind of lack of recognition, which can be deeply, deeply unsettling. But I think, so I just wanted to raise these kind of four or five moments, which, and I'm not pronouncing judgment on Gabriel. Yes, which, you are. <laughs> Absolutely, you are. <laughs> Gently pronouncing these, judgment. These were the moments which helped shape my yeah. understanding of his character and I think of his ego, which, as I said, said earlier, by the end of the of the of the story is, is shaken shaken out of his ground. Well, I'm going to balance this a little bit, and then I'm curious what Alice what Alice thinks. Um, so I so I think there are a couple of things that have to be said in Gabriel's defense. So the first is. I think his biggest problem is he's in his own way, that he actually, I think, wants to help Freddie Malins, right? He's going out of his way to, to try to make this party a success, right? Which means that he doesn't really attend the party. He's orchestrating the party, mm -hmm. but he's doing it as I think a pretty dutiful nephew would do on behalf of his aunts, who um, this is their biggest night of their year. And he, I think, is doing something relatively selfless um, by making sure the party is a success by carving the goose, by giving the speech. And let's not forget, Joyce is very clear that um, that his aunts are, he says, crimson with pleasure. Um, and so it, the one important thing that Gabriel has committed to himself that he wants to do, he does with great success, right? Which is make his aunts happy at this party, their party, their biggest party of the year. Okay, so let's say that in his defense. He's someone who's trying to make his uh, make his life uh, in the world of letters never easy to do. Um, uh, Kybert even even actually posits that um, he says, and this is a transcript of, a, of an interview um, that Professor Kybert did uh, on on the dead. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of Joyce and a lot of the characters, as always in his stories, but clearly Gabriel's is a central consciousness. Mm -hmm. And he is aloof and even a little condescending and cold in ways Joyce might have feared that he himself was as a young man and maybe as a less young man. Um, 
my reading of it is this is a portrait, a self-portrait by Joyce of what he might have become mm. had he stayed in Ireland, that he might have become a journalist or an academic in the university. Mm. And, and so I think there's um, a, a kind of a, a, a gentleness, a tenderness, as, as you say, Adam, by the end, he, he didn't, he could have just gone to sleep in a, in a, in a huff and you know, been kind of pissed off and jealous at this, you know, young, but he doesn't, he actually responds, I think in, in a way that, that um, is similar to what we see in Bloom and Stephen and, and Molly by the end of Ulysses, that they're opened up to a level of insight and a level of, um, uh, of, of sensitivity to the, to the complex and tragic um, nature of, of human life that, that, that maybe they weren't at the beginning of the story. And so those things I think should be said in defense of Gibble. I suppose, you know, if it's a kind of thesis antithesis and I'm the synthesis, um, I was so struck by, and it hadn't occurred to me in, in quite such Freudian terms, but this idea of the ego death at the end. Um, and quite, and I, I think quite rightly so, because I think he is a, he's a tricky guy. And um, either way, in some ways, like we don't, we don't really want to land on either side of this debate that I think you've so wonderfully set up. We want to, we want to transcend it. We want to kill it or drown it or, and and have it snowed upon. Um, and yeah. I think that I, I really take that seriously. That that Adam, what you said right at the beginning, that there's an ego death that happens because, you know, here's this man. He's been so in his head the whole time, and then as he's reflecting um, on, as we put it, the riot of his emotions an hour before, and he asks himself. From what had it proceeded? I mean, first of all, this is a a heady man thinking about where did his emotions come from. That's already a pretty big step, you know. One small one small step for man, one great step for mankind. Um, and then and then the, he kind of goes. The the permutation that follows is interesting because he moves through yes his own foolish speech, but he's considering other people's perspectives. He's considering the perspectives of Aunt Julia. He's considering the roles of of wine and dancing. Um, and then he's considering the role of his life in the larger sweep of the universe. And, and basically, and that's when Joyce starts to pull back and we get that wonderful ending. But he was saying, I guess Joyce then slightly takes control of it by saying of Gabriel, his own identity was fading out into, into a gray, impalpable world, the solid world itself, which these dead had one time um, reared and living in was dissolving and dwindling. And so that's the kind of, that's the uh, few sentences before the piece that Adam read. Um, and so I think, yeah, I don't have, I don't have, I'm not pro, you know, thesis antithesis. I think what's important is that the, that the debate itself dissolves and dwindles so that I suppose Joyce can move to Paris and, mm -hmm. and move on. Um, well, that that move. So the the idea of the West. So in the last page, the time had come for him, Gabriel, to set out on his journey westward. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of the most important sentences of the story. Um, the, the the West plays this very um, uh, critical and a little ambiguous role. I mean, we know that that um, his wife is from Galway. Mm -hmm that Molly Ivers proposes this trip to the Aran Islands as a way of getting in touch with his Irishness that, that pr provokes one of the other important things. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of my country. And so we get to the heart of his own um, frustrations with his own identity, going back to your point, Alice, about having to conduct a bunch of old instruments that he's ready to, to, to move on from. He doesn't want to be defined um, in 
uh, in terms of of the Irish revival and Irishness versus Britishness or versus he, he's a he's a pan European as Joyce was, but where does he lay, where does he end up? He has to come to terms with it. He has to he can't in, in, in trying to reject it in trying to reject his Irishness and say Irish isn't my language. I don't you know Western people are from the West. He's trying to you know create distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in hearing this story um, of of Michael Fury and and Greta something that moves something in him mm-hmm. and to the point where he realizes he has to reconcile with his this part of his identity because he is irish yeah, yeah, yeah and so in order for him to discover who he really is he has to go on this journey this yeah, is what, yeah, yeah. what joyce says his journey westward i mean this is also in the context of kind of yates at the time kind of telling the, <laughs> the young irish generation that the kind of the real irishness was embodied by by the west of the country but i also think that Lex, that idea of pan-Europeanism is really interesting here because he has gone east. You know, he, right. he talks about his journey. His bike trips his bike to trips Belgium and Germany. Yeah. What he hasn't done is gone west. And you can't be a true pan-European by not also making that, that journey westward, by mm. kind of refusing to accept the the formative importance of particularly with, uh, to, to an Irish person of the, the Western Irish. Yeah, what does it mean to get rid of your ego? I mean, this is this is your, your guy's point. Like, what does it mean to overcome y- your own barriers, right? Mm-hmm. To, to your own barriers to connecting with other people. Connect Because he, he is, you know, as we say, he, he is the least, um, you know, merry and engaged and present person at this party that he is maybe, again, one of the most mm-hmm. important people at. And yet, so he has to, he has to, surpass he has to get out of his own way um and that part of that is connecting with his identity as an irishman which in joyce's case required meeting nora barnacle also from yeah. galway uh in order to get him to reconcile himself mm-hmm. with his with his um complex uh relationship with ireland mm-hmm. and and um also his his role as a husband and not you can't control the person you marry you just can't it's not it's never going to work and we see it beautifully rendered later with bloom and, and molly and i think it's prefigured wonderfully in gabriel's belated and painful <laughs> recollection you know uh, uh, sort of um epiphany at the end of the story alice i think it's such a good point and i have two um responses the first response is that yeah, in you know, quite in the minds of contemporary readers, the Aran Islands represents precisely what Adam brought up, this nationalist revival, because J.M. Singh, who was kind of like, mm. you know, even beyond Yeats, wrote a book called The Aran Islands. Mm. <laughs> Is that right? I didn't, I didn't realize that. So it becomes a kind of... Is that where that movie takes place? The the Colin Farrell movie that won, that won all the I'm awards sure. last year? But you know, if if the if we're, the question is, might this be a symbol of something? The Aran Islands is a symbol of this national wild nationalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. New question. And I think I, you know, I take this, um, and I I take what you're just saying, Lex and Adam, so seriously because I think Joyce makes basically the same move in Ulysses, um, which is in order to to move forward, you have to go backwards. And I wrote about this, and I actually wanted to bring this up, kind of at the beginning, but this is great to bring this up now. I wrote about this in my little essay that I wrote as a way to reflect. So if if Lex is listening to a kind of, you know, Bluecast <laughs> on loop, I was writing about it. And I wrote of Circe, which I think is the corollary to this, um, Joyce heading westward. I wrote, brawling with history for much of the book, in Circe, the 15th episode, Joyce glimpses a way forward. If creation lies on the other side of history, give up the moody brooding, in quotes, Joyce reasons, then the history of Ulysses itself must be mined for progression to occur. Joyce as historian becomes Joyce's poet. 
uh, conjuring possibility to infinity in the true Aristotelian sense. I think I think he does it here. I think he I think this is a little trick. His trick is, and this is, and the reason I wanted to bring it up way way at the beginning is because as a kind of nascent academic, you know, if you want to contribute to the literature, and Lex knows this very well, you have to read all of the other literature yeah. that comes yeah. before you. You have to yeah. plumb the depths before you can even start to begin to say your new thing. You have to butcher the oxen of the sun in order to <laughs> be able to you yeah. know, make your own sacrifice. But this, this idea of history is crucial. I mean, just in in, in reading, like I, my, my Irish history is too, um, scant. It, it's too scant to, <laughs> to pick up on probably 1% of the references. But you could you could feel it like the references to statues or references to kings or references to yeah, even to sort of right. like previous generations in the family. Um, and I mean, Kybert again in, in this in this uh, interview um, you cited earlier, Lex, um, he says something really interesting about sort of Joyce's conception of history. And in fact, the, the mm. fact that Joyce recognised there are two types of history: there is history as straight line and history as circle. Mm, yes, yes, so yes, Kybert yes, says yes. what I think Joyce was doing was saying that history should be a straight line, taking you towards a self, towards something definite, but that in Ireland, to freedom to develop a complete self. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to gloss a little bit on, on Professor Kyber there because I don't think I don't think uh, he means straight line as in like a teleological Hegelian like mm-hmm. you know the the rise of the proletariat. I think I think what he's saying is freeing yourself from the the eternal return, the endless mm-hmm. the endless going in circles, like the horse in the story uh, in the story Gabriel tells, uh, going around going around the statue. And I I think this is what I really disliked about the idea of of the dead being the death of a marriage. I, Joyce at this point had been, when he's writing the story, he'd been with Nora for three years. Um, not a very long, but long enough, I think maybe to start feeling some, some of the circular motion that, that um, the people in, in long-term relationships, I think all, always feel and those circles can be comforting and can be reassuring, but yeah, it can, it can risk this kind of deadening of feeling and, and emotion that I think Gabriel still is in touch with in it, that the kind of the passions of, of, of their younger selves and, and, and that is reflected in their marriage, but also reflected in the circles of these people coming every year into the same, um, with the same kind of problems with alcohol and problems with mm-hmm. the faith and, you know, talking about the Pope and talking about the tenors of the past and talking about the, you know, sticking off to Republican meetings and, uh, Republican in the small R, I guess maybe the large R, but, but, um, but in the Irish sense. And, and I, I think that, that the breaking out of circles, um, is one of the hardest things to do as a human being, mm-hmm. um, especially when you're older. And the fact that he writes this when he's 24, it's, it's, I mean, cause this really is the experience of middle age. I'm 43. Um, you guys are, you know, uh, the, the sprouts of youth, uh, c- compared to me. Um, I'm precisely 43. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but with no gray hair, I'll, I'll, I'll know that. Um, and so, and so I think that this is the question that you, you ask in your forties is, um, is 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 the life of of a forward motion finished? And now I can I can I just have to accept the 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 life of circ of circles of comfortable circles, and and the fact that Joyce was able to get to that at age twenty four and and nail it with 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 you know such you know sublime poignancy and 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 also show how you can transcend it. I mean, you have to live five lifetimes to get that kind of wisdom. And Joyce is is you know is there at age twenty four? It's just astonishing. It's funny, Lex, that you you describe it as breaking out of because you know one of my f- most favorite essays is um, you know to this very point, Circles by Emerson, and he doesn't describe it as breaking out of. Um, he describes it as drawing a new circle, um, and I think I'll just read the final a paragraph from the essay because he 
um, talks about various ways that people try to do that. And I think it's really kind of related to the characters in this book who are maybe drawing or trying to break out of circles, drawing new circles in, in less literary and artistic and maybe um, long-term ways. <laughs> so Emerson writes, um, the one thing which we seek with insatiable desire is to forget ourselves, to be surprised out of our propriety, to lose our sempiternal memory and to do something without knowing how or why. In short, to draw a new circle. Nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. The way of life is wonderful. It is by abandonment. The great moments of history are the facilities of performance through the strength of ideas as the works of genius and religion. A man, said Oliver Cromwell, never rises so high as when he knows not whither he is going. Dreams and drunkenness, the use of opium and alcohol, are the semblance and counterfeit of this oracular genius and hence their dangerous attraction for men. For the like reason, they ask the aid of world passions, as in gaming and war, to ape in some manner these flames and generosities of the heart. You know, I think about this and, and think about the, the undercurrents or the overtones of alcoholism in the story. You know, you think about Joyce on the eve of war, um, writing this, and thinking about basically art is, for me, the loveliest way and, and the kind of like healthiest way, if you like, um, to draw a new circle and to and to surprise yourself and break yourself out of out of previous circles. Hmm. Well, as we as we wind this circle um, to something <laughs> of, a, of a denouement, Adam, what, why do you think this story is called The Dead? Hmm. Um, it's funny. I mean, we've mentioned the, the, the death of ego um, already, and I think there's, you know, obviously, uh, Joyce was writing in the sort of the very early days of um, of Freudian analysis, and then was known to have um, was living in Zurich for Christ's sake. Yeah, yeah, but was also known to have, have sort of disputed the uh, the the importance or the relevance of of Freud. But I think that was a, I think that was a little bit later. But he was certainly writing within that context. But right. I think he was also writing in the context of the sort of the Victorian love of ghost stories. And now I'm saying this from a very specific. Point of view is that during the Christmas holidays just last week, I reread um, uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Um, and, and where better to do that than Benin on the west, west coast of Africa? Africa. Yeah, <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> it was something about the snowy, uh, yeah, exactly. smoggy, uh, and the clop 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 of the Victorian yeah. carriages in the streets of of uh, Cotonou. Indeed, um, but I I've often um, I have often thought about that story that the ghost it was missing in one sense when you think about sort of you know people think of the great movie adaptations of the christmas carol the greatest obviously being the muppets christmas carol but yes, yes um of all time the second one which is a kind of a liberal interpretation is the is it's a wonderful life mm. and it's a what but it's a wonderful life gives you the ghost of what might have been mm, mm, mm. um and i think this is really crucial to the story and i think it's crucial to the moment in joyce's life when he's writing it, because we've, we've made reference to this already, that this was kind of Gabriel Conroy was essentially who Joyce might have become had him and Nora not fled Dublin and had they not fled Ireland. Um, I mean, in that same year of 1904. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Elman talks about um, the dead as being Joyce's first song of exile, hmm. um, which I think is it's sort of a, it's just a fascinating sort of it's his first moment of kind of looking back 
And seeing that kind of fork in the road where there was the James Joyce and Nora Barnacle who left and there was James Joyce and Nora Barnacle who stayed. Mm. And he's writing this when he's in Trieste and he's working in a bank, which obviously, you know, is not um, the most, uh, the job young James was probably most suited to. And there's a part of me that reads it sort of like as an attempt almost on the writer's part to kind of stiffen his sinews for the rightness of the decision that he has taken. And so I think for, to bring back to, to the question, this is kind of, you know, this is Joyce's ghosts of mm. Christmases that might have been. Mm. And the dead are the, it's, 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 it's Gabriel and it's Greta and it's the choices that they, that they haven't made. Alice, what do you think? Why is this story called The Dead? Um... Well, I would like to respond to what Adam said by with a reference. Your esteemed colleague. <laughs> to, to another Adam, in fact. This is, <laughs> this is Adam Phillips's, um, this is the description of Adam Phillips's missing out in praise of the unlived life. So also, you know, he's a, he's an analyst. And so there's Freud here too. Um, and it says, we all have two lives, the life we live and the life of our fantasies. So this is interesting because I guess it's a, fa- a fantastical other life. Um, but it is the life unlived, the person we have failed to be, that can trouble and even haunt us. So I think that kind of affirms what you're saying. Mm. Um, this doesn't directly answer the question next. So may, I mean, I'll, maybe I'll say what I wanted to say and then you can... Go ahead. Um, okay, so I guess what I was really struck by was, um, as, you know, here, here I am bringing up the environment again, but... <laughs> um, as many people probably experience the uncanny feeling of December rolling around, certainly on the East Coast in America, but I'm feeling it here too in England. It's unusually warm um, mm-hmm. these, this time. And, um, you know, 2023 has is, is the warmest on record. And we know that that trend is going to continue. Um, and so the fact, Adam, that you were reading and reflecting on this actually in Benin, I think is precisely to the point that I wanted to make, which is that, um, so much of um, Joyce's ability to um, kind of play the warm life of cold death that he does is the ability to animate that which is cold. Mm-hmm. And I just think about this a lot because if there's going to be something, it's not that war- warmth and heat is going to go away in this century. There's going to be a lot of warmth and heat. But what is going to go away is this feeling of cold. And actually, my sister and I were talking about it yesterday because I was saying, well, what would it mean for cold to become extinct like what does that how do we even begin to wrap our heads around that um and you know will people i mean quite apart from the question of will uh writers born in subsequent generations how would they be able to capture you know the feeling of cold if they've never felt it or if maybe they felt it artificially but they haven't felt it like the natural cold whatever that means um and so i was just struck by you know what was kind of haunting was just that this feeling like the feeling of coldness in the in the story knowing that mm. that too is going to be a thing of the past in the future because it's su- it's such an important device like he really there really isn't a, a kind of close proximity between being alive and being rosy cheeked and being kind of hot versus the the cold dead pale shades of the outside world you know and it's just a curious um, and kind of devastating, and and I we you know I feel it now. I feel it um, in the December that used to be colder when I was a kid. I feel the warmth of it, and it feels wrong. It feels weird. And this scene, this whole story, that whole evening wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have been able to 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 
write it in that way had he not had Cole there as a presence. Yeah, I, I think I think um, the image of the snow mm. um, falling generally over Ireland and over the city. I mean, I remember um, looking over, looking right now at Notre Dame. I remember in 2012, um, there was a great snowfall in, in Paris. And I remember walking with a friend of mine that I met at Shakespeare and Company named Masha. And we were walking in Notre Dame. And it was just, it was the most beautiful silence and that kind of gentle silence of a city covered by snow, um, it's, it's, it's something, as you say, um, I mean, th- there is a pain in being out in, in, in cold for too long, but there's also a pain in not being cold, right? There's a pain in not being cold when you, when you think that it's, the, it's a time of year one should be. I remember growing up in Washington, D.C., and my, my dad you know, telling me stories of playing hockey on the Potomac River when it froze over. And I remember doing it once and it hasn't frozen over in the last 25 years. So this is happening right all around us in, in the world. Um, I wanted to bring in our fifth Beatle, um, Professor Kybert here, because he, he has some wonderful observations about um, the snow and and um, death, uh, but not only death um, and and why the dead might not actually be as, as sad and final um, uh, a moniker for this story as, as it might be. So uh, Professor Kybert says in this, in this, uh, in this interview, um, the snow that falls on his body, the body of Michael Fury in the graveyard, as well as on the live body of the live Gabriel. And of course, what Joyce is suggesting is that the living may be dead and the dead may be living. There's a kind of mutuality binding them all together. And Gabriel is described as going west, which in one reading is taken as a metaphor for death. But actually, Professor Kybert says, what I think is really going on is a summons back to a heightened sense of life after a near-death experience. Mm. And that's totally emblematic of so many phases of Irish culture, from the time when you know the Gaelic bards were part of a system that collapsed back in the 1600s and thought Gaelic culture was die- dying with the collapse of their Gaelic chieftains, only to discover that it had an enhanced expression in other forms of art after that near-death experience. And I think Joyce is particularly, particularly good on that. The ways in which you almost have to die many times, including in your own youth, if you're ever going to be fully born. And I'm going to add this postscript. Connor Cruz O'Brien once said, the Irish were in danger of commemorating themselves to death. And we know what he meant. But there's also a sense in which they commemorate themselves back into life. And Joyce is very interested in the idea of the feast, the festival, the day that comes around once a year and is both Mm. proof against forgetfulness because you have to mark it, but also a positive way of literally remembering the past of putting it back together. After all, he invented Bloomsday, the 16th of June. And it's based in a way on an old old fashioned Catholic feast day that the date will come around again and be marked. This, the dead, is set at the epiphany, meaning the feast of the epiphany, And it's also a festival day and a recognized moment in the life of this family, in the emotional graph they trace, that once a year these people gather together and do this thing. It's almost like, quote, do this in memory of me. Mm. Extraordinary. That idea of the kind of the many deaths you have to experience in order to move forward in life, I think is really important. And like we talked about the fact that Joyce was so young when he was writing this. Um, and maybe that is testament to him having experienced certain of these deaths. Because I think one of the 
one of the things being in exile is a kind of death i mean well i was gonna ask you that exactly like how can one you know what does that actually mean practically speaking Mm -hmm. (laughs) like when do these moments of death occur but this is the thing like i mean this this moment of gabriel conroy's ego death at the end of the thing i mean it's greta is doing him we can say this externally and not having to live through it, but an a monumental enormous favor. favor. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. That's yeah. Right. Like he's, he is, you know, his, she's cracking open his life in a way that, you know, that, that he, we, she didn't have clearly, to share that story about yeah, Michael Ferry. Absolutely not. And he was clearly, you know, he was turning in circles as, you know, as many of us do end up doing and all of us do end up doing, I think at different points. In no, our it's, lives. it's, it's the grace that Nora Barnacle gave to Joyce. That reason why Nora Barnacle is the, is the, is the equal genius mm-hmm. behind the, the genius of Joyce yeah. in all of these stories, because were it not for Greta, Gabriel wouldn't have achieved his, that act of recognition. And, and it was, it was Joyce again, giving one more um, uh, tribute to, to his wife. Lex, you mentioned um, that in a quote from Kybert, Bloomsday. Um, and I think it is important now to talk about the the bridge between the dead um, and the other stories in Dubliners and Ulysses, which, of course, we spent so much time talking about. So, Alice, I know you have something to say about this. Well, I only have something to say because you teed it up so brilliantly. And here, Kong Tobin will come in and just keep it rolling. But um, he writes of the connection to Ulysses in the introduction to the Canongate edition. In Ulysses, Joyce took the world of Dubliners and cracked it open. Ah. In this story, he limit. I bet you that was kind of in your mind. Actually. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was still thinking of, of Beckett's tennis ball, but you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Any really, really loyal listener will know what time is about. <laughs> um, unlike Lex, who's listened. Well, I mean, the whole joke, right, is thank God we're recording a new episode, so you don't, you're not forced to listen to the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. <laughs> um, this is Toy Bean also writing about the. Um, this, the, the whole collection's relationship to Ulysses, um, but also the story. Uh, the dead, in this story, he limited his father's intelligence and wit. In Ulysses, on the other hand, he suggested that the same wit was boundless. Even the nationalists in Ulysses have wit, however limited. The streets filled with darkness and doublers are filled with promise in Ulysses. The two books then displayed the artists in opposite moods. Dublin shows a city filled with the colours and shades of autumn and winter, it offers images powerful enough to be repudiated with real comic energy in Ulysses. Well, that is, I think, because uh, I'd highlighted particularly that mid, middle sentence yeah. of what you read there, Alice, the, the streets filled with darkness in Dubliners are filled with promise in Ulysses. And it just made me, I don't know, it filled me with a certain sort of sense of joy that there's sort of, because Joyce was writing Ulysses, what, then I guess a decade almost after he was writing mm. the dead mm. and to see, I guess, I don't want to say exactly that he's, he'd softened towards Dublin because I think that's a more kind of, it's a, it's a more complex emotion than that, but just seeing the kind of the. He'd enlarged his feelings. About right. Dublin. Yeah. 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 It had become more all encompassing, more human. And I think in that, you know, that, that, that to be an introduction, he really captures that, that sort of, um, not that there's anything remotely kind of limited about about the dead, but maybe that is where we do feel the younger man. Actually, maybe we do feel the kind of the, the kind of the resoluteness, uh, mm. the sh- uh, sort of a sense of certainty. And I think Joyce was less certain than a lot of young men. But I think, you know, maybe that is how it, it, it manifests in that story is with this sort of slightly dark, slightly harsh idea of the the Dublin that he had just left behind. Whereas a decade le- later. It's sort of blossomed inside him. It's 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 evolved. It's sort of again to use that phrase, cracked open into something 
much more um, universal. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some fun light motifs of of um, of the dead that get that get uh, spun forward and into the arias of of Ulysses from the the importance of tenors and um, mm-hmm. the the rabble rousing of uh, of of Republican. Um, uh, militants against the British Empire at the at its close in uh, in its first colony. Let us let us not forget uh, which which Ireland was um, at the end of of, of uh, rule from London. So, but I, I think what's really fun in thinking about the bridge to Ulysses are, are are two points. The first is how Gabriel is such a funny mix of Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom. Right. If you think about okay, so he's Bloom in the sense that he's a middle aged guy in a kind of complicated marriage, let's say, <laughs> in a marriage that's not, uh, that's it's clearly passionate, where he very, it's a loving marriage, but one with distance and alienation. And so um, that that part is something that he he uh, develops to, to enormous uh, power in, in Ulysses. But in terms of the Joyce alter ego, Gabriel Conroy is absolutely as wrapped up in his own thoughts and, and, and his, and is as, uh, pompous in the, in the most it, it, congenially pompous as, as um, <laughs> Stephen Dedalus more, I guess, Buck Mulligan, but no, certainly taking himself as seriously as Stephen Dedalus does yeah, um, yeah. as, as a, as a writerly, you know, orchestrating um, consciousness. So, and then the second is this incredible articulation of the collective the individual mm-hmm. and the cosmic that mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. the dead starts as this collective scene as you say adam you you've written a scene of eight people which neither alice or i have yet to, to know how difficult and how how you know virtuosic um it, this is to to write a convincing scene of a party um and and then to bring it down to the level of these individual um uh um Crises. I mean, it's really both Greta and and Gabriel are in a crisis in the in the final scene, and and yet achieve some kind of mm-hmm. um, higher understanding of themselves, and then and then the final lines of you know his soul softly swooned as the you know as the yeah. snow fell over the country, and as we as Alice you so wonderfully um, took us into the the water into the pipes of 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 the city of Dublin that the the Joyce's ability to connect us through all of the mundane parts of, of our communal life into something cosmic and universal. Yeah. Um, I think that's here in Embryo and in the Dead as well. Well, there's, there's an interesting thing about the positioning of that, isn't there? Because, of course, in Ulysses, you have the cosmic in Ithaca. Before the... Before, yes, before the individual. And then you get, and then you re, re, return to yeah. the, the, the individual. And here, you, you end on the cosmic. Yeah, end on the cosmic. Although, you know, this is an interesting point because Toybin points to this too and he draws parallels precisely to these two endings and he says, in the ending of the story of the dead, as in the ending of Ulysses, he would attempt to find a totalizing image which would move the narrative beyond itself, Mm. risking a great deal as it did so, to finish in a set of cadences so ambiguous and open-ended as to repudiate the hard, unsparing vision and the spare prose. Mm -hmm. So I think he he agrees with both of you in that way. I think we've done a good job of bringing in our, our some of our heroes uh, in the room between <laughs> Professor Kybert and Toybean. Um, are we ready for a game? 
Oh, it wouldn't be Christmas without one. Would would, I think it wouldn't be. It wouldn't. No. Be, it wouldn't be the holiday season <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. without without a game. Um, uh, I I demand a noticeable though before we do the game. Do you guys have any noticeables? Any favorite moments in the dead before we? Any favorite little tidbits we haven't talked about yet before we? Uh, before we. I love I love the um the kind of well I might yeah I have a noticeable which is the uh, it's it's another kind of environmental point but on um when when he goes through all of the things that are on the feast on the table with the fat brown goose at one end, but then just various uh, fruits and <laughs> sweets and chocolates. And I love that the there's a pyramid of oranges and there are the American apples. And what I loved is that towards the end of that description, um, the bottles, the alcohol is described in militaristic terms. So uh, a yellow, a huge yellow dish in waiting and behind it were three squads of bottles of stout and ale and minerals drawn up according to the colors of their uniforms. The first two black with brown and red labels. The third and smallest squad white with traverse green sashes. I thought that was a strange um, choice. A wonderful image. Nice. Adam, any noticeables you want to share? Um, one thing that just uh, struck me um, when, when reading it, and I can't remember exactly the, the moment because I don't have my copy in front of me, but just the, the Turner phrase, um, days beyond recall. Days beyond recall. Um, which again, to uh, well, to any any reader of, of Ulysses and to Bloomfield's existence will immediately sweetness loves love, old sweet song. song. Um, and again, I think it's sort of a lot of a lot of Joyce's references, you know, are made explicit the songs he refers to. But at other times, there are certain turns of phrase which are buried in in his work that, um, well, as as he so wished, have kept the uh, the scholars busy for. for Hundreds of years. Um, my, mine is the very first sentence. Uh, Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. Um, Professor Kybird says, this is uh, my last time I get to bring Declan Kybird in uh, for, this, for this edition. He says, that's a tired phrase, the kind that Lily herself might probably use. Mm. And there's a sense in which Joyce is the ultimate Democrat. He describes characters in something like the language they might describe themselves to themselves. So the first two or three pages of the story are governed not by the consciousness of Gabriel Conroy, but more by the consciousness of Lily, who actually finds the whole thing a bit of a chore. Mm. So that's my, that's my favorite notice of all right there. Okay, guys, so here's our, here's our game. Our game, uh, building on our uh, the the roaring success of our Bloomstis uh, fantasy draft. Well, can year. we just can we just say that was a roaring success, given the fact that this is virtually uh, mediated? <laughs> well, it was one of our best conversations yet. <laughs> we just we, we we grow and 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 develop like a fine wine, don't we, Alice? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so here's 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 the game. Um, uh, building on the roaring success of last year's fantasy draft, we're going to do another fantasy draft this year, 2024. Um, but this time we're drafting six people, a team of six for a dinner party, a Joycean dinner party. And our our draftees are the characters from the dead and Ulysses. So we have to, the three of us, choose from the, the pick of the litter to make our own superior preferred dinner party guests. So I'm going to give the quick overview of the of the of the cast of characters that I put on this list. So from the dead, we have Gabriel Conroy, we have Greta Conroy, we have Julia and Kate Morkin, we have Freddie Malins, Molly Ivers, Bartel Darcy, and Lily the housemaid. And from Ulysses, 
And there are going to be a couple of these that will go in pairs because they only appear in pairs. And so they will count as one as one guest for the purposes of the game. We have Leopold Bloom, Stephen Dedalus, Molly Bloom. We have Buck Mulligan, Gertie McDowell, Dilly Dedalus, Martin Cunningham, Simon Dedalus, Amina Kennedy and Lydia Deuce, the sirens, the barmaids, Blazes Boylan, Professor McHugh and Miles Crawford from Aeolus, Bella Cohen from Circe, uh, Biddy the Clap and Cunty Kate, also from Circe, <laughs> Almadano Artifoni, the Italian uh, teacher of Stephen Dedalus, Cashel, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdall, Farrell. Those are our potential dinner party guests. And so we begin with round one, Adam Biles. Um, Who is your preferred dinner party guest? Why does he go first? <laughs> and uh, round one, Alice McCrum. Alice McCrum, um, who is your number one draft pick for your dinner party? Who are you inviting to dinner first? I know. It's Buck Mulligan. <laughs> Amazing. Why? Because he, any any dinner party that Buck Mulligan is at will be a good one. Why? Because he'll, he'll, set, he'll set the tone. He's got a kind of gregarious, fun-loving spirit. And that's that you just need always one person at the dinner party who understands that even if everyone's having a terrible time, you have to kind of keep the show on the road. Keep the show on the road. Okay, uh, Buck Mulligan, Adam Biles, your round one pick. Molly Bloom. Molly Bloom, why? Because... <laughs> Look at that, so listen to that sigh. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that sigh. It's going to be so profound, what you say is going to be so profound. <laughs> I suppose we spend so much time in Molly Bloom's head. We don't see a great deal of Molly Bloom in company, and I would be intrigued to see how the two uh, I'm taking Leopold Bloom uh, because he's my man and I want <laughs> I want to spend as much time with him as possible um, he is the ultimate Democrat he is the uh, the ultimate inquisitive interlocutor in any conversation so I'm taking Leopold Bloom for my party thank you very much round two Alice McCrum so then yes then I'll have Stephen because for precisely the same reason I want to spend time around him um, and I know that he'll be counterbalanced by his kind of brooding will that's why I chose Buck because Buck now anyone I pick is going to be offset by Buck's spirit and so, Stephen's going to have a bad time because Buck's there so you're yeah. guaranteed that. <laughs> but we but who knows maybe you'll maybe you'll you know you'll you'll resuscitate the, the evening just to say the fact that Leopold is at yours and Molly's at mine he's going to be fretting all the it's going to be fretting <laughs> These could be successive well, evenings. Okay. If you want blazers, are you going to invite blazers? You know about, well, we'll see. We'll no, see. Adam Biles, round two. Absolutely not. My round next two. guest is going to be Simon Dedalus. Si why Simon Dedalus? Um, <laughs> because I think he has... I, I, because my next choice was going to be Stephen. Um, but I think there's a lot in Simon that is also in Stephen. Mm. Um, he's a complex character. He's a difficult character. Um, I think... I have a hunch him and Molly would probably get along. Yeah. Um, and he's a tenor. You need a one good tenor. Exactly. Yes. And certainly as, um, as singers, both, they would, they would have something to talk about. Um, I'm going to take from my round two pick Greta Conroy because um, mm -hmm. Greta is, I think, um, a wonderful presence. She's the, if you can't have Molly Bloom, you, then you get the other Nor Nora Barnacle um, uh, stand-in, which is, which is Greta. But I think she, she, at least as portrayed by Angelica Houston, um, would be um, a wonderful, warm, um, and engaging, vivacious presence at, at a party. And uh, so Greta would be my round two pick. So uh, round three, Alice McCrum, who is who'd be the third seat at your table? Yeah, I have Al Mediano Artifoni. Artifoni, <laughs> um, professore. Why? 
I'm, I'm really thinking about this as, as a curation of group, right? And as so you I should. That, um, the, the fact that he's Stephen's Italian teacher will draw out the Italian continent-loving side of Stephen and hopefully, um, you know, smooth any ruffled feathers between any, any questions about nationalism and the relationship between England and Ireland will be absolved or kind of sub subsumed by this larger presence of the Italian and, and questions about Italy. Beautiful. Adam, your round three pick. Uh, I will take Gabriel Conroy. Okay, why? Because I want to give him a second chance. I want to give him a chance! <laughs> the guy deserves a second chance. He's not going to make the after dinner speech. He's not going to carve the turkey. He has no responsibility at my dinner party. <laughs> Let's see. Are you making Let's a see speech? if the man can redeem himself. Let's see how he Egoless. Exactly. An, an egoless yes, Gabriel. Yeah, post the dead. Post the dead, Gabriel. I like that. So I need a tenor, guys. I'm, I'm not going to have a dinner party without any music. So I'm going to take Bartel Darcy as my, as my stand in tenor. Uh, since Joyce himself will presumably not be available. Uh, round four, Alice McCrum. Okay, so then I will have the two ladies from the Sirens. Yes, Biddy the Clap and Plenty Kate. No, no, no. no. Oh, Sirens, Sirens, Sirens. Mind Kennedy and Lydia Deuce. Singing, not sex. Singing, not sex. Singing, um, not sex. And why is that? Because I need some more ladies. I, I'm not just going to serve all these like pretentious intellectual men dinner and, and have them get into fights. I want some women, and I want some women who are surrounded by music, because I too want some music at the at the dinner party, and I hope that kind of their presence will draw out the musical sides of everyone. Beautiful. Uh, round four, Adam Adam Biles. I will take. Yeah, now hmm. we're down to the dregs. No, I take, I take Molly Ivers. Okay, tell me why. Because she's spirited. She she has ideas. She'd be fun. She'd be fun at yeah, the party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd also I'd like to see her in conversation with Molly. Mm. I think they I think they'd have a lot to say to each other. I think and two Molly Bloom rather. Yeah, the two Mollys. Because Molly Ivers I think is much more intellectual. Her idea of the whole West of Ireland. Certainly is, political. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whereas where Molly Bloom is um, is not. Mm. Um, and I think they. I don't know if they would get along, but I think they have an interest. Okay, I am for my round four pick. I'm taking Dilly Dedalus. Uh, Dilly, presumably Dolores, I want to say her real name, the younger sister. And here's why I think she has, if, for my money, the best walk on part in the entire novel of Ulysses when she, in Wandering Rocks, um, sees Stephen, and Stephen notices that she has bought with a one penny uh, an old French textbook. Um, this is the younger sister who's living in abject mm -hmm. poverty, um, but squeezes a little bit of money out of her father, uh, the alcoholic Simon Dedalus, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, with that purchase of the French textbook shows that she wants to um, live a better life. And I think she deserves a party, Dilly Dedalus. And so Dilly Dedalus is coming to my house. So there you go. Uh, round five, Alice McCrum. Uh, Prof McHugh and Miles Crawford. Mm -hmm. And uh... why would you like those gents? I would like this, gents, because I want to talk about intellectual matters as well. That's true. So they get us to get the table. The, Ro the Roman and Empire will certainly come in the conversation. And I also like, you know, I like, I like this idea of Anne Guest. You know, so I like this idea <laughs> this of, one. of, you know, maybe I, the original invite was Lydia, maybe the original invite was Miles, and that they bring a surprise along. Um, I think an Anne Guest times two at a dinner party is a nice dynamic. Ah, uh, well done, well done. Adam Biles, your penultimate pick, round five. Oh my goodness, um, penultimate, really? Okay, uh, I, who have I got so far? Uh, you have Molly Bloom, Simon Dedalus, Gabriel Conroy, and Molly Ivers. Pretty good group. Okay, so, um, um, okay. so I will go 
Freddy Malins. Freddy Malins. <laughs> I, I felt you going in that direction. Why Freddy? Because I... I mean, I'm, I'm hoping he's going to show up sooner. <laughs> Um, are you? It's not. Are you hoping it's, it's going to show up? For Gabriel's sake, I, am. I, I, think, I think he's actually a lovable guy, I Freddie Malins. I think he's fun. Um, I think he, he really yeah, does mean I well. I think him and Gabriel get along. Yeah. Uh, he'll put Gabriel with his ease a bit more. Yeah. And um, yeah. Okay, I'm going to take for my penultimate pick Martin Cunningham, because Martin, of all of the kind of uh, great um, mass of of downwardly mobile uh, Dubliners in, in Ulysses is the one I think is the most uh, is the most sympathetic. He's he's Bloom's kind of only friend um, in the in the in the in the Cyclops, and he's genial. He has a uh, interesting job at the at the castle, and uh, I'm gonna take Martin. Okay, so our last picks, uh, Alice. To remind you, you have Buck Mulligan, Stephen Dedalus, uh, Professor Artifoni, uh, the Sirens, Professor McHugh and Miles Crawford, and you have one more pick. Okay, so. If I was being really annoying, I would say I don't want any more people because I already have two guests. <laughs> okay. But in the spirit of Anne Guest, I'll have Jane and Kate Morkin. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, um, I think Julia. I, I, I wrote Jane and Miss Julia. Miss Julia uh, and Miss Kate. Okay, okay. Um, the two aunts, because they're also wonderful singers, so they can bring out um, the musical side of people. They also will offset... Uh, they're a bit older, I think, and I think it's really nice at dinner parties to have um, different generations. And more ladies so then it will be kind of equal split um adam just to remind you have molly bloom simon dedalus gabriel conroy molly ivers and freddie malins your final pick and who is left sorry uh we have um lily the housemaid adam Biles. Uh, bella cohen biddy the clap uh and cunty kate and cashel Boyle, uh o'connor fitzmaurice tisdall farrell and blazes Boylan. uh i'll take bella cohen bella cohen why <laughs> because every party needs a massacre <laughs> I, mean, I couldn't say better. And so my final pick um, at my uh, dinner party of Leopold Bloom, Greta Conroy, Bartel Darcy, Dilly Dedalus, and Martin Cumming. I'm going to take Lily the housemaid, guys. I'm yeah. taking Lily. Lily deserves Lily a good time. Deserves Lily deserves a party. So Dilly and Lily, Martin Cunningham will will be a, a supportive Lily. presence, supporting presence. Bartel Darcy will, will sing us through the evening. And Greta Conroy, Leopold Bloom, can you imagine better company over the course of an evening? So there you go. I'm also very proud of the fact that none of us wanted to invite Blazes Boy. <laughs> the old cad. I was surprised you went for Buck Mulligan so fast. Come on, Buck Mulligan's going to make every party about him, don't you think? Uh, sure. But, but, he's a, but he's a good time. Let's be honest. He's also he's, a good time, right? On the subject of good times. On the subject of good this times. This has been one. I think so. I think we, I think we made it, guys. We, we landed yeah. the plane. Alice, any closing thoughts? Um, only that it was such a great pleasure yeah. and um, and hopefully there's more soon dot 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 she said portentously um, otherwise Bloomsday is on a Sunday this year the first time in a weekend I think yeah, since yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. in Paris so 12 years so um, just putting it out there to anybody who's listening who might want to be in Paris for Bloomsday it's going to be an even bigger party oh. than usual and in addition to Bloomsday we will also be having a special um, Bloomcast bonus episode um, in celebration of your book, Adam, uh, because Alice and I have some questions for you about Beasts of England. This is the interview I'm most nervous about. (laughs) As well, you should be. Um, So stay tuned, listeners, because Beasts of England will be coming up next on your podcast feed. Well, well, been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Happy holidays, everybody. Um, Joy is fit. Happy, peaceful, joyful 2024 Mm. um, to all of you, wherever you're listening from. Um, 
All that's left to say is thank you for listening. Happy reading. À très bientôt.